Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, your host of Vodka O'Clock Podcast. And I just want to give this brief little introduction to tell you what you are about to hear. It's one of the recordings from the 2015 Steampunk World's Fair. This is the Edgar Allan Poe and Victorian Morning Lecture by Chris Semter, who's from the Poe Museum. So I've done an awful lot of coverage on this year's Steampunk World's Fair. You just go to amberunmasked.com and you can find the hub of links for every individual uh, piece of content because there's podcasts that are going to be going up and there's also a bunch of written recaps from the different panels that I went to plus an overall general recap which should give you an idea if you've never been to a steampunk convention or at least never been to this one if you look at the general recap that has a million pictures in it I swear and it has um, basically all of the bits of information about the things that you could expect at that kind of show so um, if you appreciate this kind of coverage, I would absolutely love if you go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked and sponsor Vodka O'Clock and the website for as little as a dollar per week. And um, I really appreciate it. It's going really well. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. And of course, everything else is at the website, amberunmasked.com. So for more information on Steampunk World's Fair, just go to their website and you can follow them on Twitter at Steamworld's Fair. We're in the Poe and Morning session. I think it's something called something like that, or we called it Death Victorian style Poe and Victorian Morning. And are you all readers of Edgar Allan Poe? Yes. All right. To get us into the Poe mood, who knows a few lines from The Raven? So that's one of the most recognizable poems in the English language. We have visitors at the Poe Museum from Japan and Sweden and France and Germany, and they all know that poem. We have people who come and visit us who never read it in English before, and they get to read it for the first time in English in our Raven Room. So he's one of the few writers whose poems we still read, and of his contemporaries, he was one of the few that still remembered. So a lot of people don't read N.P. Willis anymore. Are there any big N.P. Willis fans? No. <laughs> But our topic tonight is morning and pose time. And my fancy remote control doesn't work. So I'll have to use buttons like a caveman. And that doesn't work either. Trust me, they're wonderful pictures. <laughs> I think you need to go into slideshow mode. It looks like you're still in windowed mode. Is, is that five? Anybody else remember this stuff from back in the day? Well, this is in PowerPoint viewer mode because I don't have real PowerPoint. Oh, there you go. Did it do it? No. Nope. Oh, there's Oh, there we go. Technology. 
So there's old Eddie. This is a daguerreotype from 1848, a year before his death and four days after a suicide attempt. So this is pretty much the worst picture you could take of him. He's depressed and miserable. He tried to overdose on laudanum four days before this was taken. And then the night before it was taken, some of his friends tried to cheer him up by taking him out drinking. <laughs> of course, he, he got drunk after a glass of wine. He'd be staggering drunk, hung over for days afterwards. But this is the one everybody likes. This is the one on the t-shirts and the Beatles albums. We even sell t-shirts of that in our gift shop. And when he wrote an essay about how to write poetry, he explained that poetry had to be beautiful. So what do you think was the most beautiful thing he could write about? Death. He said, the death of a beautiful young woman is a theme most ideally suited to poetry. So he took that theme and ran with it. There's Lenore and the Sleeper and the Raven and Annabelle Lee and Tamerlane. But he explained that when a poem's beautiful, it should make you feel sad because sorrow is the most beautiful of feelings. So the death of a beautiful young woman is something that combines death and beauty all in one. And there's a scene from the Raven, Lenore, embracing death. And we get a lot of visitors to the museum who think, well, he wrote a lot about death. He must be really morbid. But really, they thought about mourning differently in Poe's time. And there's another mourning session. I think it's either before this or after this. So they'll probably give you all the really good details about mourning and the process. So ladies had it pretty rough. After your husband died, you were obliged for the next year to dress all in black, to wear a black veil, and to wear black jewelry. If you wrote a letter, it had to be on morning stationery with a black border around it. Now, if you're a man, you got off the hook pretty easily. You wore a black armband. You're good, at, good to go after about six months. But a lady's mourning process might last about five years or more. And some ladies enjoyed it so much they kept mourning the rest of their lives. Queen so Elizabeth. And a lot of the customs we think of, we associate with Victorian morning, sort of late Victorian morning, sort of after post time. He died in 1849. But they got really elaborate. People went into debt trying to pay for their funerals and their elaborate funeral processions. And of course, they're really fashionable morning outfits. And this is a morning brooch we had on display for one of our exhibits. We did an exhibit about death and mourning in Poe's day, so you can see the little lock of hair inside. And you know what this is? Yeah, we don't use these much anymore. This is a tear catcher. And if your husband died, you could cry into it for the whole year after he died and keep the tears. And there's a little stopper there, so you can keep it stopped so your tears don't evaporate. Then after the year's up, then you can remove the stopper and let your tears evaporate. And here is a morning sampler from Poe's time. So young girls are learning their ABCs, they're learning how to sew, and here her subject is in memory of Mary Ann, who died eight years old. And morning was getting pretty elaborate in this time because it's the 19th century. There's new advances in technology and medicine. 
they thought they were making advances in medicine. They're actually giving you pills made of mercury and. <laughs> but people's life expectancies tend to be a little bit longer. By today's standards, we really think it was pretty short, but 55 years old. Do you have a question? Yeah, it's, um, this reminds me. You, you mentioned that the women, mourned for the men had a certain time period, and then for women. But what about the children? Yeah, was the, there a certain time Yeah, the children could mourn for about a year or so. But what about a parent that lost? Yeah, they could also mourn period? over their child. I'm not sure what the set time period is. They'll probably have that in the other session. But I wanted to make this kind of Poe-centric. So we'll start out in Richmond, and that was Poe's hometown. He grew up there. He spent more of his life in Richmond than any other city. And Richmonders consider themselves very aristocratic. They consider themselves the landed gentry, the heirs to the nobility. Now that's just the few people owned the large plantations, the rest of the people were a lower class. And when Poe first came to town, it was 1810, there were only about 10,000 people in Richmond. Compare that with New York City had about half a million, and Philadelphia had about a quarter of a million. So Richmond wasn't a very huge city, but it was a decadent city. You could play cards, you could drink, you could gamble, you could go to the horse races. And Poe's mother came there because she did something very scandalous. She was an actress. And back then they called the theater the Den of Harlots. No respectable lady would go out singing and dancing on stage in front of a bunch of men, maybe showing some ankle on stage. This was a day when you still had to keep the piano legs covered. You didn't really want to show that sort of thing. And she actually made her acting debut in Boston three years after they legalized acting in the city of Boston. And when she died in Richmond, there was a little bit of controversy about where to bury her. Where do you bury an actress? <laughs> they agreed to bury her in the public burial grounds at St. John's Church, so long as she's way off against the outside wall where she couldn't contaminate everybody else. <laughs> and this is the theater where she gave her last performance, the Richmond Theater, the largest theater in town. But there's something wrong with it. <laughs> yeah, it's not supposed to have that fire coming out of the windows like that. Just about two weeks after she died, it was the night after Christmas, 1811, the house is packed. Everybody who was anybody was there that night, including the governor. And backstage, a chandelier caught the sets on fire. So the whole backstage was quickly engulfed in flames. The audience was still watching the play. They had no idea what was going on. They supposedly commented on the realistic lighting effects. <laughs> and then an actor came on on stage and said, the, the house is on fire, evacuate. They ran to the door, the doors open inwards. They're all trying to push them outward. And as you can see in the picture, people are jumping out the windows. The very wealthy people upstairs were in their box seats and balconies. They had one staircase to get back down, and it collapsed under the weight of all those people. And there are stories of people going in time and again to rescue more women. Women would be lowered out the windows. There was a slave called Gilbert Hunt who personally rescued 12 different women who were lowered out the window to him, and he kept rescuing them until the wall collapsed, and he just barely escaped. And they still didn't let him go free after that. That's a side note, but he actually was a hero at a penitentiary fire after that, and they still didn't let him go free. But they allowed him to buy his freedom. And he became a successful blacksmith after that. But out of a population of 10,000, as I mentioned, 72 people died, including the governor of Virginia and a state senator. The whole city went to appear to public mourning afterwards. The U.S. Senate wore black armbands for a month. 
But they banned acting for several months. They decided never to build another theater on that spot. And it was eight years before they built another theater in Richmond. But if you were convicted of the crime of acting during that time, you'd be fined $6.66. So that's the world in which Poe grew up. He grew up with people making fun of him for being the son of players, for not even knowing what had happened to his father. His father abandoned the family when Poe was only about a year old. So people speculated that they weren't even sure who his sister's father was because they thought that actresses were loose ladies. But if they're never going to build another theater there, what are they going to do with the spot? They decide to build a church. And this spire was never built. It's just the dome, and it was designed to look like an ancient tomb. And this is still part of their process of mourning. This is the front portico. And you know, just to complete the effect of it being a tomb, they did bury the victims in a mass grave underneath the church. And the front door was only opened one Sunday a year. The rest of the year you had to enter through the sides. It was only open on Easter because that's when the tomb was opened. And as you go up the front steps, there's a ceremonial urn. And it has the name of the victims all over the base. And it's decorated with scenes of mourning. There's an hourglass with wings, it's fleeting time. There's a wreath, there's mourning figures here. On the sides, you can barely see there's upside down torches, they're extinguishing the torches, this is life cut short. So the whole church was like this, decorated these scenes of mourning and death. You have a question? Yeah, what religion is it, that church? It's Episcopal. Uh, it was Episcopal, but the congregation left the church in the 60s, so now it's empty. But the Historic Richmond Foundation owns it and maintains it. It's a really nice place. And that's where Poe used to worship growing up. So this is one of Poe's influences. This is the Allen family pew. The Allens were his foster parents. And there's a little plaque that was placed in honor of his foster mother when she died. She also died early. And she died of tuberculosis just like Poe's mother and brother and wife. And they said at that time in urban areas, in America and Europe, anywhere from 50 to 80% of people had tuberculosis. A lot of it was latent, and Poe probably had it but just didn't exhibit symptoms until the very end, but we know that a lot of people in his life exhibited the symptoms, so he would have had exposure to it. But this is what you want to see. This is the crypt underneath the church. So this is, the victims are in this big brick vault here. And they've had paranormal investigators go underneath there and take pictures, and one of them said they saw a hand. It could have just been dust. And this is Shaco Hill Cemetery, and this is a place Poe spent a lot of time growing up. This is the grave of Jane Stith Craig Stannard. She is the woman Poe called the first purely ideal love of my soul. He met her when he was 14 years old. He said she walked in the room. He was speechless for several minutes, hardly breathed. He almost passed out, fainted right at her feet. But there's a problem. She, he's still 14. She's his best friend's mother, so she's 31 and married. It wouldn't have really worked out. <laughs> but poets like unrequited love. They like to worship somebody from afar. She probably thought he was a nice, weird kid. <laughs> so she gave him motherly advice and encouragement. 
and his poem to Helen is dedicated to her. That one that starts that Helen, thy beauty is to me like those Nicene barks of yore, which gently over the perfume and see the weary, wayward wanderer aboard to his own native shore. So he's comparing her to the ship that's carrying him across the ocean. Her beauty is so great that it's carrying her back home to him, or to her. But unfortunately, not long after they met, she went insane and died. They said it was a case of exhaustion from the mania, which could mean a lot of things. So we just don't know what it was exactly. And, and a lot of women around Richmond, we know, had mania at the time. And there were a couple different cures. You could send them off to an asylum, which was considered inhumane, or you could keep them at home and give them a rest cure where you kept them away from loud noises, bright colors, reading material, anything that could distract them. Seems like that would just make them more insane, though. <laughs> but it said that for a while, poets take nightly visuals of the grave, and even after he got married, he used to take his wife up to the cemetery and say, that's the grave of my Helen. <laughs> And speaking of mourning, I wanted to mention his mother-in-law. She lost her husband pretty early, and she dressed in mourning for the rest of her life. It's a standard that's really set by Queen Victoria, who dressed in mourning for almost 40 years after her husband died. She just ran with it. But here she is, once again. She was always said to wear her widow's cap. And we have some of her clothing in the museum. This is a little black cap, a wool cap that she had, and her stockings. So in case you were curious what Poe's mother-in-law's feet looked like, she had kind of large feet. And you can't see this very well, but she had a spider web pattern on her socks there. So it was really intricate. And she kept a deathbed portrait of her daughter. This is Edgar's wife, Virginia. This is the best-known portrait of her. It's her deathbed. So this is just shortly after her death, so she's still pretty fresh here. <laughs> but this wasn't uncommon at all. So you see here, these are some portraits of ladies with their children post-mortem. And here's a man with his child. And there's someone missing, the mother, so she's probably also died, maybe in childbirth. Here's another dead baby. So this wasn't really unusual at all at the time. And this is a painting. We see a lot of these photographs. We don't see as many of these paintings and pastels because they're a little bit more labor-intensive. And also, she kept locks of hair. Now, it's talking about these elaborate mourning rituals, and Poe's mother-in-law dressed in mourning for the rest of her life, so there wasn't a lot of change after her husband, and after her husband, then her daughter, then her son-in-law died. But... She tell you, Poe didn't have a very traditional funeral. His family didn't like it very much. He was traveling on his way from Richmond to New York, and along the way he passed through Baltimore. He disappeared for five days. When he was found, he was semi-conscious, dressed in somebody else's clothes, nobody knew what had happened to him. He spent his last four days in a hospital, delirious and in and out of consciousness, talking to shadows in the wall. And some of his cousins got together, got him a really cheap coffin, although his cousin later said he, he sprung for a really nice mahogany coffin. We later found out that wasn't really true. And only about seven people showed up for his funeral, just some relatives and the man who carried him to the hospital, a fellow named Joseph Snodgrass, a magazine editor. And an observer passed by the cemetery said it was the most unchristian-like thing they'd ever seen. Just one of the cousins said a few words and they buried him. It wasn't until about 11 years after his death, 
that some of his cousins decided to give him a monument for his grave. That, better late than never. <laughs> but they carved these things next to the train tracks. The shop was next to the train tracks. They could put them on the train, carry them into town. A train jumped the tracks, smashed into the shop, and destroyed his marker. So then we go 15 years after that, a full 26 years after Poe died. Then it was teachers and students started raising money. Pennies for Poe, they called it. Just one penny at a time until they raised enough money to get Poe the nicest monuments in the whole cemetery. So they got him to such a nice monument that they decided he shouldn't be way back in the back in the Poe family plot. He should be right next to the cemetery gate in a place of honor. So they dug him up. And as they were moving across the cemetery, having this grand ceremony, wouldn't you know, the coffin fell apart. <laughs> and the newspapers reported it for the next day. So there's three different newspapers that carried the story. And they said by then, all the skin was gone except for a little bit of dried up skin on his arm. That his rib cage had fallen open. His mandible had fallen off. And he had little teeth resting around his skull. And they did all comment he had really nice teeth. <laughs> and they buried most of it in the new spot and they put his well most of it because people grabbed chunks of the coffin and one of Poe's lady friends her name is Annie Richmond they were never actually engaged because she wouldn't leave her husband for him but he wrote his poem for Annie for her and there's a letter he wrote at the end of his life. He's about to marry a lady in Richmond called Elmira Shelton. And he writes to his mother-in-law and says, tell me nothing of Annie. I can't bear to hear it unless it's that her husband has died. <laughs> so he really has strong feelings for her, but she couldn't give up her comfortable lifestyle to live with this poet who's always on the brink of starvation. So she probably made a good decision. Did they give him a new coffee? No, they buried the new piece, the old coffin in the new place, and then they buried his mother-in-law on one side of him, and they thought, hey, this would be a really good time to bring his wife down and bury her next to him. She died in the Bronx, and if you go up to the Bronx, there's a little cottage, and they, they used to live in that little cottage there back when the Bronx was countryside, 14 miles outside New York City. And Poe at the time couldn't afford to have her buried, so his landlord allowed them to bury her in his family's crypt. But by this time, it's long after Poe's death, long after her death, they're building over the cemetery, and they moved all the bodies. But Poe's most devoted fan ever, his name was William Gill, and he wrote a biography of Poe. He personally rescued the bones of Virginia Poe, but he took them home with him. <laughs> and he kept them in a box under his bed for several years, and he would invite people to come and touch the bones of Annabelle Lee. and. Eventually, somebody convinced them that was a bad idea. So now he's, she's buried next to her husband. So people had different ways of mourning. And that lady, Annie Richmond, the one he wrote for Annie for, she got this lock of Poe's hair. That was another part of the mourning of Poe. When he died, his cousin, Henry, his uncle, Henry Herring, started giving out locks of hair. So there's locks of hair of Poe's all over the place where it clipped at his deathbed. One of the newspapers commented after they saw the corpse that they were surprised they had any hair left after they were all done with it. They were just clipping hair left and right, giving it out to people. There's you know, at least one lock at the Free Library of Philadelphia. I think there's two at the University of Texas. There's one in the New York Public Library. There's one in the Poe Museum. These are, this is in a private collection. 
And this is a nice piece because both of these are connected to Poe's mother-in-law. She gave these out, but this has Poe's hair and his wife's hair in it. And this is the clip that's at the Poe Museum. And some of the locks are just little clippings they made because so many people would give a few strands to different friends. And people do ask if there's any DNA, and there's probably not a whole lot. These were clips, so there's not the follicle or anything. We can't clone him yet. And here's another cheerful lady. This is Poe's sister. And this is 1865. This is after a few tragedies have happened in Richmond. Her, her brothers died a while earlier, but she never married. She lived with her foster mother, Jane Scott McKenzie, and this is the year her foster mother died. So she's mourning for her, and the city of Richmond is just burned. There's this big fire at the end of the Civil War. The Confederates were evacuating. They decided to burn down the city so the Union couldn't get, couldn't get a hold of their supplies. So you see, if you look at old photos from the Civil War in Richmond, you see lots of widows walking around all dressed in black throughout the burnt streets of Richmond. And here's another picture of her taken a while later. Now this is from The Mask of the Red Death. It's one of his short stories. So he, he wrote a lot of pieces dealing with death, not just death of women. But death was a pretty common subject back then, so he's not the only one who is writing these things. This is a whole mourning book and we found lots of little books like this. This is probably only about five inches high, so it's something you could maybe take with you. You know, you could occasionally read some morning poetry. Here's the preface. And they're talking about how poets are keenly aware of the sorrows of death and they can help us cope with mourning. And this is just a couple pages of the table of contents and there's titles of it like the mother to her child, to a dying child, Requiem, the dead, lines to a young mother, the reaper and the flowers, the disembodied spirit, the dying child, the lost child, the cherub's mission, the dying boy, the dying child, the dying girl, to the dead, deathbed, blessed are the dead. <laughs> And these were some of Poe's contemporaries. And I've read through a couple of these books that we've been able to find at local bookstores. And this one is edited by John Keyes, who's one of Poe's acquaintances, who published some of Poe's stories. And we found another one edited by Rufus Griswold, who's Poe's literary executor, who published a lot of Poe's works because he's a literary executor. But they don't include any of Poe's poems. And just reading through it, you sort of get a sense why because these poems are meant to comfort, comfort people, and they're about how your dead loved ones will be joined by the angels, and they're looking down on you from heaven. So they're supposed to comfort you. And that's not really Poe's thing. <laughs> you think about the raven. I mean, the man, he obviously knows the raven, only knows how to say the word nevermore, but he keeps asking these questions, even though he knows it's going to say that. He's torturing himself. He says, tell the soul with, with sorrow laden if within the distant Aiden it shall clasp the sainted maiden whom the angels name the Lenore. Quote the raven, nevermore. So he's never going to see her again. He's never going to be reunited with her again. 
So this is kind of a very bleak image of death, and he writes about death describing as just a dissolution that you're just becoming particles again, so you're not really going to see your loved ones again. And instead of having angels who are looking after your loved ones, you have in the Annabelle Lee, the angels not so happy in heaven, went covenant, went envying her and me, and that is the reason that all men know in this kingdom by the sea, the wind blew out of the cloud by night, chilling my Annabelle Lee. So that the angels coveted their love, and they're jealous, and they want to take her away from them. So there's kind of evil angels there. So there's an illustration for the raven. So Paul has a much bleaker image of death. And another way you saw a lot of mourning in the books of Poe's time, in Dickens and other novels, this is Little Dorrit dying. The dead are usually on their deathbed. They're having what's called the beautiful death. And tuberculosis back then, they thought it was pretty hot. <laughs> they, the way they described women with tuberculosis, they thought that was pretty attractive. They said they have an unearthly glow. They're not long for this earth. And there's descriptions of Poe's wife where they really like that description of her in the advanced stage of tuberculosis. And there's a lot of novels at the time that have loved ones on their deathbed surrounded by their family praying for them but not Poe <laughs> he sort of parodies this convention this is from the facts of the case of M. Valdemar and in that story instead of having his loved ones comfort him Valdemar agrees to kind of give his body up to science and he has some mesmerists who watch over him at his death and decide I wonder what would happen if we mesmerized him right before he dies. And they use some magnets to pass over him, and they mesmerize him, and they're able to suspend the process of death. So he stays on his deathbed for months afterwards. And they're able to ask him questions, and they hear this disembodied voice answering them. Sometimes they see his blackened, rotting tongue wiggling, and, and he just keeps saying, I'm dead, I'm dead, let me die. And they finally wake him up from his trance. He just dissolved in some pool of goo before their very eyes. <laughs> so you couldn't get much farther from the traditional <laughs> deathbed scene. <laughs> so there he is dying. There's his blackened tongue there. This is from Creepy. This was a comic series back in the 70s. Yep. <laughs> and another parody of that kind of deathbed scene is in Lygia. And that's when the Lady Lygia, she's known for her large, dark eyes, her pale skin. They said there's something of the strange about her, something intangible. And she wasted away like many of the women in Poe's stories, but as she wasted away and dying, instead of having them read something from that book, The Mourner's Chaplets, or some other mourning book of comforting poetry to read while you're mourning, she asked her husband to read her The Conqueror Worm. <laughs> And it's a poem about how we're all, in the end, just worm food. <laughs> so you really ought to read that one. After, after she dies, she says, I'm going to come back. If there's any way, I'll come back. And her husband marries the Lady Trepetta, who's everything Lygia isn't. She's cheerful and, and blonde and petite. But then she starts to waste away and die. And you all just have to see what happens. <laughs> But don't watch the Roger Corbin movies because they get Lygia and Morella mixed up. 
And in Poe's time, there were also epidemics. We already talked about how tuberculosis was very widespread. There were also yellow fever epidemics, but there was also the dreaded cholera. And Poe survived two cholera epidemics. There was one in 1831, and he barely survived that one. And he was in Baltimore when it hit, and he could see them carrying the coffins outside the city. It was just terrible. And there's another one he survived, barely survived, in 1849. He was in Philadelphia, and it was the city was almost a ghost town while he was there. And that's when his doctor prescribed him to take calomel pills. And they would say, take enough of these pills till your gums start bleeding. Now they know that's a sign of mercury poisoning. <laughs> and we found out from his hair he had 33 times normal safe level of mercury in his system. But at least, I guess maybe it took care of the cholera. <laughs> and we have some old newspapers from 1849 and they list the people who died of natural causes each week, and then they also list the hundreds of people who died from the cholera that week. And it said that New York City alone, 100,000 people just left. They just wanted to escape to the countryside. So Poe decided to make fun of these things. <laughs> After the 1831 epidemic, he wrote a story called King Pest. And this is a great one about two drunken sailors who skip out of their bar tab. They run out of the bar, and they're stumbling through the streets of London in the plague time. And they stumble upon this dark room full of coffins. And they're suddenly throwing a party in there. And they find out the people throwing the party are all dying of the plague. And I guess you can't see it well from here, but the room is lit by a candle that's inside of a skull. There's a skeleton hanging from the ceiling. They're all drinking out of human skulls. One of the ladies is sitting up in her coffin. They're all just waiting to die. Yeah, it's an awesome party. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. Go on a high note. And in the end, the drunken sailors take off with two of the women, and they run out of there. And this is Poe's version of comedy. But Robert Louis Stevenson, who did Treasure Island, he read this and said, whoever wrote King Pest has ceased to be human. <laughs> but this is how some people reacted to all this mass death, this death on a grand scale. In Paris in 1831, this was covered in the newspapers in America too, but some people decided we're going to die anyway. Let's just throw a big death party. We'll throw a masquerade ball. So they're all dressed up in their costumes, and then just at the stroke of midnight, someone comes in dressed as the Grim Reaper. Yep, the Mask of the Red Death was inspired by this death party from Paris. So not everybody was dealing with mourning quite the same way. And this is another widow from Poe's life. Her name's Sarah Helen Whitman. She's from Providence. And that was one of the stops on his lecture tour after his wife died. He got a fan letter from her. She wrote a Valentine's poem for him about how she wanted to fly at the raven up to his nest up in the sky. And they never even met. But he dropped everything. He went to Providence to meet her. And he found out she was a spiritualist. And she believed they were soulmates because they were both born on January 19th. So they took a walk through the cemetery together, and he proposed from among the tombstones. 
And she said, no way, her, her mother would disinherit her if she married Poe. So that didn't quite work out yet. <laughs> That's when he attempted suicide. And after the suicide attempt, she said, okay, I'll marry you on one condition. If you ever touch alcohol again, the wedding's off. So their engagement lasted one month. <laughs> and she was a pretty cool lady. She had ether she carried around with her everywhere until she got worked up. And when Poe went and tried to get her to give him one last chance, she just inhaled some of her own ether and knocked herself out. <laughs> but, but this was about 1848, and 1848 is also the year the Fox sisters here started hearing rapping noises. And later they confessed that they'd done it with their feet, so they sort of cracked the knuckles of their toes. But they gave birth to the modern spiritualist movement. There were mesmerists before them who were trying to communicate with death through mesmerism, but it really took off with these Fox sisters. So Sarah Helen Woodman here was a big devotee of them. And after Poe died, she thought that she heard strange noises in her room. When she would ask a mental question, she would hear a noise, and she thought that was Poe trying to communicate with her. So she hired a medium to move in with her for six months to help her communicate with Poe's spirits. And then later she became a medium, and she said that she was eventually able to get some spiritual letters from Poe. And Poe's literary executor, Rufus Griswold, he also attended a seance where they likely tried to get in touch with Poe, but he later said he thought it was just a bunch of bunk. But wouldn't you know, Poe kept writing after he's dead. And there's different authors who said they were mediums channeling Poe's spirits. So if you look, I think there's some of them on eBay now. Lizzie Doden was one of them in the 1850s and 60s. She transcribed poems. She said they were written by Poe's spirit. So he kept on writing long after he was dead. <laughs> and in a way, Poe writing these stories about mesmerism helped fuel this movement because the story about the man who turned into a pool of goo, people thought that was a true story. And he told people it was a hoax, that you really can't communicate with the dead, but they wouldn't believe him when he said it was a hoax. And there's letters people wrote to him saying, you're just pretending it's a hoax, aren't you? And one fellow said he even tried a similar experiment. He found a guy who died of drinking too much, and he was able to bring him back from the dead using mesmerism. He's probably just passed out, though. <laughs> So that's a little bit about Poe and Mooring, but you know, later in the 19th century, he died in 1849, but then this is from about 1902. You see they have more elaborate deathbed art. This is one from our collection, 1902. They call this the mother's dream. And you can see here she's taking her child's clothing out of the drawer, but there's her little child floating up above her. So that's just a little bit about Poe and Mourning, but for all the nitty-gritty details, there's another session that'll tell you more of the specifics about what they did. But I just wanted to give you sort of an overview of Mourning and Poe's life and some of the artifacts that still survive related to it. Well, did you have any questions? There you go. Remember correctly, wasn't there somebody who supposedly, like, even like 100 years after he died, they went building and dropping a rose on Poe's grave? Yep, that's the Poe Toaster. And it started in 1949. That's the centennial of Poe's death. He showed up at Poe's grave, and he left three roses and a bottle of cognac. He'd drink half the bottle and leave the rest for Poe to finish. 
And it just kept coming back year after year. And people started gathering at the cemetery, waiting for him. It's kind of like the, the Great Pumpkin. They don't have to <laughs> and unfortunately, it always happened on Poe's birthday, which is January 19th. So you can imagine sitting out there in 20-degree weather, waiting for this guy to show up. And one guy said he was there two years in a row, but was looking the wrong direction both times. <laughs> and the guy's always dressed in black. And there's at least two of them, maybe even three of them, that have done it over the years. We know that one of them left a note saying the torch will be passed, and then another one came out. He liked sending notes, so when the Ravens were in the Super Bowl, he left a note about that. <laughs> and so he kind of ruined the tradition with his notes. And he still kept leaving those bottles of cognac. And I think the Poe House in Baltimore keeps all the bottles, so I think the curator up there was finishing them off. <laughs> And then in 2009, that was the bicentennial of Poe's birth. That was the last year it happened. There was no explanation. Other people have come there since then, but it hadn't been the same guy. The curator of there sort of he gets a signal from him when it's the real guy, so he knows which one is the real Poe toaster. And these, the ones who've come since then haven't been the real one, and they don't leave the roses in the right pattern. So I guess the tradition's over. Maybe he had a flat tire. <laughs> Uh, any other questions? Where is he buried? He's buried at Westminster Presbyterian in Baltimore. It's called the corner of Fayette and Green Streets. That question? I know in the Okay, he asked what Poe is trying to get at with the Mask of the Red Death. And people have all these theories because there's seven rooms and there's seven different colors. And they speculate it's the seven ages of man or maybe it means this, maybe it means that. And it's about Prince Prospero who's throwing this big party while the peasants are outside. So maybe he's criticizing the way that the wealthy landed gentry don't care about the poor. But Poe always said he doesn't want to teach you anything of the stories. He doesn't want to be didactic. He thinks that's a waste of time. He said that art should make you feel something. The poem should exist for the poem's sake. And that was kind of a move away from what the critics and the poets of Poe's time believed was really worthwhile in art. They thought that art should teach you something. Especially the transcendentalist writers thought that art should be used to edify or educate you. And, and he said that was just ridiculous. Art should just be beautiful. It should make you feel something. So he wrote stories that were designed to make you feel either terror or laughter or sorrow. But he wrote a good essay he called The Philosophy of Composition about how he constructed the raven mathematically to try to achieve a feeling of melancholy. He said the colors in the poem, like the black raven, the white bus, were all designed to enhance that feeling of melancholy. He thought the O sound in Nevermore enhanced that feeling. He thought that that's why he repeats the word Nevermore at each stanza because he thinks that even if you don't speak English, just hearing the music of it will make you feel sorrowful. But he thought it would be silly if a person kept saying nevermore over and over again. So why not an animal that doesn't know what he's saying? So he thought maybe a parrot. But then he thought, well, a raven is better because the black plumage enhances that feeling. So maybe those colors of the rooms in the Mask of the Red Death are just enhancing the feeling he's going for, this feeling of terror. There's a lot of red imagery there and black. Yeah, 
Yeah, he's more going for a feeling, and if there is a theme, it's at the end that darkness, death, darkness, decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. So it's just that you really can't escape, but that's that terror of death. And in post time, imagine you've just survived the cholera pandemic of 1831, and now you're reading a story about this. So this is something that people in his day really felt, because they didn't really understand about germs yet. So they didn't know what was causing this. And, and here he's making stories out of it. People back then were afraid of being buried alive. So what's he do? He writes stories about it. He capitalizes on the public sphere, the sensational fears that are making the headlines, and puts them into his stories. Are there any other questions? Yes? Yeah, there's one called Edgar Allan Poe's Richmond, the Raven, and the River City. Cool. And we can get it on our website at poemuseum.org. I don't know if they sent me up with any of them this weekend. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Well, thanks for coming out tonight. I hope you're thoroughly depressed now. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank the Jeff Mack events team for putting together such a wonderful Steampunk World's Fair convention for this year. And what you just heard was Chris Semter from the Poe Museum talking about Edgar Allan Poe and very interesting Victorian morning rites. So for everything that you want to know, you can go to amberunmasked.com. I have a Steampunk tag so you can easily find other content where I covered this show. And also, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. And don't forget, if you really appreciate this kind of content, go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked and sponsor the show and the website for as little as a dollar per week. It's greatly appreciated.